The people who are against the right to keep and bear arms, they know they're never going to get a politician to just ban guns. So what they do is they incrementally make regulations to the point where it becomes A, cost prohibitive, or B, the high barrier to entry is so high. A new bill, HD 4420. This bill was the largest and most comprehensive gun control bill in the history of our country. And I would argue that it is the most anti-civil rights bill ever been presented. Hello to everybody watching and listening. Hope you're having a wonderful day. Welcome to the Sons of Liberty podcast. I am Sam Mealy. I'm Hunter Young. And today we have got a very special guest joining us. Actually, we're joining you in your building. You hear the gunshots around. We're in a gun store, uh, Cape Gunworks here in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. He's a respected man, well-known in the community. He's an entrepreneur. He's a businessman, talk radio host sometimes. Uh, and he's actually an aspiring politician, which I would love to get into. <laughs> But here in a little bit. And of course, you are best known, I hear, as the Ammo King. I saw saw something on the YouTube. That was was pretty cool. Toby Leary, honored to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's always fun to talk and bring our conversations in other venues and other places that wouldn't normally pop up or crop up. So I'm I'm happy to talk about anything and everything. So uh, whatever you guys got planned, I'm game. Uh, aspiring politician. No, I don't know. That one feels a little weird because uh, it's new. Yes, it's it, new. And I would say I decided to run for town office as a way to give back to my community. I don't know that I see that as a career path I am looking to reinvent myself in, but you never know. You never know. You just, yeah, you never know. I've already uh, reinvented myself several times throughout my life. So anything's possible at this point. I guess I wouldn't even. Yeah be surprised. Yeah, no, that's like, actually a good segue. I was curious. I wanted to start off just with your background. I mean, like mm-hmm. I did say, you, you own a gun store right now, Cape mm-hmm. Gunworks, um, and amazing store. Like, I, I believe it's the largest gun store, at least on Cape Cod. I don't know. Certainly. Like, probably in Massachusetts. That's yeah. awesome. That is amazing. In terms of like size, revenue, like inventory? or I would say size and, uh, you know, offerings. Okay. Uh, there's probably some other shops out there in the Metro West area that do higher dollar volume than us, but it's a much different demographic and, gotcha. pa- and paradigm. It's, yeah. Ours is more of a, you know, a complete package, if you will. So like we offer the license to carry classes. We offer the how to shoot your gun classes. We offer um, non-lethal classes. We offer all kinds of classes. And then also uh, we have a range attached to the shop. That's why you hear the gunfire. Um, and we, do a lot of one-on-one individual training and, and uh, you know, instruction. And then we also um, have a retail shop. So those three legs to the stool is what makes Cape Gunworks. Um, so we have training, retail, and uh, the range. So that's really what it comes down to. How long have you been here? We've been in this building for about six and a half years. Okay. How did you... Get into this. Was you were you doing? Were you working for gun stores before? Or was no. this something that kind of just? Came yeah, up? no, it's a good question. The, uh, my my real job <laughs> is uh, I've been in construction my entire life. Okay. So okay. when I was five years old, I knew I was going to be a carpenter when I grew up, and I went to tech school and uh, was happy working for people, but had this little weird entrepreneurial itch. So I um, went out on my own when I was like eighteen years old and worked for two years, but had no idea how to run a business, how to, how to balance a, you know, do a balance sheet or a profit loss or any of that. Plus there's all kinds of other stuff that like insurances and taxes and big adult stuff, you know? So at 18 years old, I was ill prepared for the real world as far as business is concerned. So I worked for two years for myself and then I went to work for another builder for about seven years and kind of learned uh, the the administrative side of the construction business. And then uh, I thought I'd retire from that company. And one day I just had this overwhelming itch again uh, to do it for myself. So I started a company. We just celebrated our 20th year in business, Toby Leary Fine Woodworking. And uh, so we're, you know, that's still going strong. And then about a little over 10 years ago, my business partner and I, um, and I've been a lifelong hunter and gun enthusiast and advocate, if you will, um, since I was probably 12 years old and first started shooting in the Boy Scouts. 
uh, ironically, my parents wouldn't even let me get a BB gun, you know, wow. they knew my nature. And so I had to <laughs> roam, the, roam the woods with sticks and uh, slingshots that I made myself. But uh, I, I couldn't get a gun until I was 18. So, um, but again, I, I was an enthusiast, you know, I, it was in me. I really loved to shoot, loved to hunt. And then Brendan and I, uh, he's my business partner at Cape Gunworks. We went on a trip to, uh, Vegas with a friend and while we were there we did a two-day defensive handgun class and then um, on the plane back we both were like you know this needs to come east we need to do this out on the east coast and Cape Cod really needs a good strong uh, gun store and whatnot so Hmm. we kind of whiteboarded it we got out the notebook and we started to scratch out a business plan which we ended up writing and um, then we decided to get the ball rolling. We applied for our license to operate a gun store in the state, local, and federal level. And so it took about a year to get all the licenses in. And Ooh. we opened in the gun store, I mean, in the uh, woodworking shop. We had this little uh, closet under the stairs, and uh, <laughs> that was the gun store. And wow. you open the door, and there's to this day, there's shelves in there where a bunch of old binders are and paperwork and the, the shelves say like nine millimeter, 40, 45, like, you know, so that's where I stashed all the ammo and the few guns we had in inventory. It was all by appointment. But uh, then we found a little retail shop. We were trying to pitch this idea of Cape Gunworks to banks mm-hmm. and they kind of nodded and smiled and said, yeah, that sounds great. Good luck with that. You know, once you uh, figure it out, come back and see us. And we realized we weren't going to get funding with no customer base, no yeah. business records, you know, whatsoever. So we started a little like mom and pop retail operation um, in an old bank right okay. right in front of my woodworking shop. Okay. And so we, we went in there and um, we opened on July 5th, 2014. And uh, we had kind of emptied the life savings between the two of us. And we had some little plastic displays glass displays that look like fish tanks and they had a couple shelves in them and would spread out the guns like two on this shelf one on this shelf maybe three on the bottom shelf and uh to make it look like we had more we stretched them out so because it was a pathetic offering for (laughs) opening the doors you know i think we probably had a total of 10 or 15 guns in the whole store and we're calling ourselves a gun store Uh. and i remember ordering ammunition and being like um, yeah, we need to get some nine millimeter. And the guy on the other end of the phone at the distributor would be like, how many cases do you want? I'm like, cases? I want like 10 boxes. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to, you know, I can't afford to get 10 cases. So we were trickling it in, but started selling. And really we just were trying to offer good customer service mm-hmm. and, uh, and build that customer base. And that happened very quickly. So we had something to go to the bank with. So there was really, there was a market for it here in Cape Cod and the banks thought that there wasn't? Is that kind of? Well, the banks didn't. Number one, they probably were scared off by the fact that it was guns. Number two, um, there was a thing going on in the federal government called um, Operation Choke Point, where they grouped gun stores in financially with, uh, with marijuana growers, uh, strip clubs, Photographers and other high risk, what they call high risk businesses. Ours is a legit business. The other ones, maybe, maybe not. You know, you, even though guns are legal, yeah, guns yeah. are constitutional. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, they're enumerated <laughs> in our nation's constitution, and all of a sudden, banks it's wouldn't lend. Or yeah, yeah, banks wouldn't lend because uh, the Obama administration wanted to find ways of restricting guns, and so they used this financial aspect. So all these national banks. Um, in fact, one of the ones on Cape Cod that funded a local competitor actually pulled the account and said, you got to get your money out of our bank because of this Operation Choke Point. Mm. There's still remnants of that lingering, but it's not really an issue anymore. But um, So there was that that we were fighting against. Yeah. Then the fact that we were just unproven. We had this big dream. And we're asking for millions of dollars yeah. and nothing to show for it. They're like, yeah, okay, the dream is good. The business plan looks great. Um, we don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. It's not like something that 
they have a portfolio of lending to you know gun stores they have mm-hmm. a portfolio of restaurants and you know builders and whatever other type of thing but to the bank we were just some new startup company that was too risky to lend to so you've had issues with banks and everything and you know mm-hmm. being too risky to uh, have money lended to you what about like on a on a pol- on a uh, political level have you had issues with uh, local uh, the local government maybe the state government federal government as far as just trying to encroach on your rights because mm-hmm. i know we're in massachusetts not the most conservative place in the union right uh what, what has been your history with like the politicians around here and the politics i I, I would say um that actually hasn't been too much of a problem we That's had good. uh a interesting thing happen right when we were starting out was the Barnstable Public Range closed. The town of Barnstable um, found out they didn't have any insurance there, and so, long story, but so they closed it, and it still has never reopened because of a bunch of other issues that have cropped up. So everybody was really upset at the town for closing this range that had been in continuous operation since probably before World War II, and now no one could go shoot their guns. And so the town used us as like this deflection method. They were like, don't worry. There's a great <laughs> company forming. Uh, they're they're going to do great. They're going to have an indoor range. You know, th- this is still very preliminary yeah. on our end. Uh, but they were rolling out the red carpet for us, so to speak, because it awesome. took the heat off them. So they just gave you that customer base that the banks were like, where's your, where's your base? Well, we always knew about that base, if you will, but um, they... It was a deflection method for the town. Mm -hmm. When we first opened the gun store in my little woodworking shop, um, the local building inspector was like, no, you can't open a gun store here. You don't have a right of the zone. And we're like, "Uh, we're in one of the most generous business zones in the town called the Hyannis Gateway. Um, That that allows for retail. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, not firearms retail. Like, because it doesn't say firearm in front of retail means I, like, if I was opening a shoe store, you would let me, right? Yeah. Well, it doesn't say shoe retail. It just says retail, right? Right? Yeah. So that he knew he had to, he had to uh, grant us the business license. But I had to hire an attorney to write him a letter and say they have a right of the zone, yep. issue the license. Did he just not like guns? What was his deal? Yeah, that was yeah. the thing. I think that some of the zoning people and some of the town officials were like, what? A gun store is going to open in town. Like, that's crazy. What are you nuts? Like, you can't do that. And, of course, we can, and we did. And um, I think we put on a, a very good example of what a responsible establishment would look yeah. like. Um, but, you know, they had to put up the roadblock first. And so then when we opened Cape Gunworks, the, the range over here at this location, at our current location, uh, again, they kind of rolled out the red carpet for us because that whole range shutdown was was a was a problem so i had no issues whatsoever getting permitting for this but then before we opened is when all the issues cropped up by all the little uh you know all the bureaucrats along the way that enforce whatever code issues they're you're dealing with so we had some massive massive roadblocks right like the week before we opened uh, they were trying to delay it and cost us money and you know bleed us out if you will I don't think that was an official town position. It was more people's trying to justify their existence behind a desk or something. It's it's interesting how you go into all the little things that are like the operation choke point and the zoning laws they're trying to. It's interesting how people assume, I feel like when they're, when they come after people who own guns, that there's just going to be a top down kind of like, Oh, if you're a gun owner, like you got to give up your guns. But those are, I feel like the little things that they're trying to just make it a little bit harder just to open up a gun store a little bit harder and I feel like it, that's how it started. We call it in the industry death by a thousand cuts. You know, that's really what the, the people who are against the right to keep and bear arms aren't. They know they're never. It's kind of like the analogy is like what I just talked about going to a bank trying to get a loan for this operation right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. I was never going to get that loan. And the anti-gun people know that they're not going to get a politician to just ban guns. Right. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they incrementally make regulations to the point where it, it becomes A, cost prohibitive, or B, um, the high barrier to entry is so high, people just say forget it, 
or they uh, and they're smart by doing it against businesses because that trickles down to the consumer. If you do it against the consumer, now you got to deal with 300 million people. Mm -hmm. Like in the state of Massachusetts, there's 600,000 gun owners, but there's I think five to 600 firearms-related businesses. So they only have to regulate and control the five to 600 businesses mm. on that front where it's the death by a thousand cuts. And we just, we have, you know, I'm probably jumping ahead, but we have bills yeah, before no. us right now that are along those lines, you know, that just want to restrict and, mm -hmm. and hamstring the business operation of the firearms industry in Massachusetts. That's so interesting that instead, like you said, instead of going after the individual, because when you get the, when you get the, the people mad, that's when you have a populist uprising mm -hmm. and the government can't handle that. Right. So they go after the businesses because it's easier to handle. That's so interesting. Yeah. That's very maniacal. Yeah. And the big, <laughs> that, that was tested and I would say implemented almost to perfection on July 20th, 2016, when Maura Healy woke up and decided to enforce laws that don't exist on the books. Mm. Um, she said that uh, for too long, firearms manufacturers and dealers are getting away with uh, a assault weapons ban that has been on the books since 2004. It was the federal assault weapons ban from 2004, and it sunsetted federally in 2014. I'm sorry, uh, 94 is when the assault weapons Clinton, ban right? went. Yeah, the 94 assault weapons ban went into effect in 2004 is when it sunsetted federally. Massachusetts made it permanent in 98. So they decided to adopt the exact language of the federal assault weapons ban and then uh, have it on the books because they knew in 20, 2004 it was going to sunset. So they didn't want that to happen, so made it permanent. So Massachusetts has been living under the federal assault weapons ban since 1994. But in 2016, she decided to reinterpret it. She literally became judge, jury, and executioner all in one fell swoop. She acted as all three branches of government, mm. the judiciary, the legislative, and the executive branch by her edict. It was this order that she put out, and it was an assault weapons ban enforcement letter that she sent, again, to the dealers. She didn't send it out to the 600,000 yep. gun owners, sent it to the dealers and said, if you continue to sell these guns, uh, and they were guns that were legal for sale the entire time federally from 94 to 2004. Um, not another attorney general in all 50 states interpreted the bill the way that she interpreted it. Even the federal government didn't interpret it the way she interpreted it. And so she twisted it around and threatened the dealers that if you do this, your license will be subject to remove, you know, revocation, uh, you'll be facing a 10-year uh, prison sentence and up to $10,000 fine. Wow. And ironically, they're like, we're going to fine you first ten grand, and that's going to fund your own prosecution. I'm like, what other, what other industry does that? Or what other, how does, you know, like police can't arrest you and then fine your, levy your bank account to fund your own prosecution, right? That's not the way this no. works. That's, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. And they, uh, but they're saying... And again, she was stretching the assault weapons ban definition in ways that have never been recognized by any other attorney general throughout the uh, entire country in that 10-year period. Interesting. Yeah. And now she's governor. Yeah, now oh, she's governor. Yeah, yeah. so taking that, that was 2016. <laughs> yep. Let's bring it up to 2023. Now Maura Healy, no longer attorney general, she's governor of Massachusetts. And a new bill, I think this is a good time to bring it up, uh, HD 4420, I think it's called... Something else now? I'm not. I've 4139. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, can you just explain the bill uh, for yeah. people who don't know, maybe are around the country, or if they live in Massachusetts and they they want to get educated? Can you just yeah. explain that? Kind of elevator pitch, kind of. Yeah, know? the elevator yeah. pitch. Yeah, it's um, it's a hundred. It was originally 144 pages. Now, as written, it's 122. I think so they were able to lop off 22 pages, uh, which didn't do much. Only, but yeah. um, the this bill was the largest and most comprehensive gun control bill in the history of our country anywhere. And I would argue that it is the most anti-civil rights bill ever been presented by any government 
anywhere in the history of our country. Wow. Um, it's, it really uh, points a loaded gun at the most peaceful, law-abiding citizens in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, yep. which is the gun owner. And that is the only thing it seeks to um, affect. They use all this anecdotal evidence of crime as the reason why they need to affect the most peaceful, responsible, law-abiding citizens in Massachusetts. I'm like, that's a solution in search of a problem. Mm -hmm. If you restrict my right to keep and bear arms, it's not going to lower crime because I'm not the one out committing crime. It's not going to lower uh, the murder rate because I'm not the one out committing murders. Mm -hmm. If you want to, um, you know, have a true conversation about how to lower crime, I'm at the table. Let's let's talk. Mm -hmm. But if you want to just point the loaded gun at, at the most peaceful, law-abiding citizens in Massachusetts, I, I reject that, number one. Number two, it's unconstitutional. Number three, the legislature doesn't possess the constitutional authority to do what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It is... It is outside of their purview. There's constitutional limitations to their powers, and they cannot affect or deprive anyone of the right to keep and bear arms, or any right for that matter. So it's a, it's a much bigger issue. I think that the state is going to face some serious, serious um, federal code violations because they are, in fact, going to deprive uh, citizens of their natural rights. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, to zoom out a little bit, I know that's good, that's specifics to know that, um, but why do you think that, do you think they're doing this out of a place of like, we're just trying to protect people, or do you think there's a more like sinister thing behind it, they want to be able to have, to be tyranny, to have tyranny, and do you think it's more of that, or do you think they're genuinely concerned and just ignorant to? I think there's two schools there. There's, I think the people who are sophisticated enough to write law and run a campaign and get elected and have gone through law school and a lot of times um, they've graduated from pretty good law schools i think there's something much more nefarious involved there i don't think they're dumb i don't think they're stupid and i don't think uh they're just out to they know that you know they can look at the same data i look at and see that defensive gun use happens between 500,000 and 3 million times a year. And all they can do is point to the 15,000 uh, undesired outcomes of deaths with firearms, 15 to 20,000 a year. But yeah, what about the 500,000 to 3 million times firearms are used yeah. for defensive gun uses a year? Like if you just do a risk versus reward type of thing that far outweighs yeah. the negatives of, of uh, firearms in, in our culture. But... Um, so I think that they are far sophisticated enough to understand, you know, gun control doesn't reduce crime, and it's the death by a thousand cuts. They really do have an agenda and want to see guns banned from our society, whether it's from a position of tyranny or from a position of ignorance. I don't know. I honestly think there's probably some people out there that understand full well the role of the Second Amendment as far as government and say, this is a safety relief valve for the people of America. That's what the founder's intent of the Second Amendment was. It was a tyranny relief valve, if you will, to make sure that what our founders just overthrew could never happen again in America. So um, when we surrender those, the right to keep and bear arms, now, yeah, we can muster down on town hall with our shovels and pitchforks, but it's not the same as having the same arms that our, you know, government officials and military have. They, they do fear an armed uprising, I believe that, and that's a healthy thing for government to fear an armed uprising. I also think that um, there are those that just genuinely think if we can snap our fingers and make guns go away in society, we will be safer. And I'm sure there's a lot of people with some true intentions in their heart that think they're going to give money to organizations, they're going to lobby for this and that. 
uh, to try to make guns go away and that'll make the world a better place. But that's not reality. You can look at, and they love to say, oh, there's, this is an American problem. No, it isn't. Like we had one of the worst mass shootings in the history of the world happen in uh, Paris, France, not too long ago when they went to that theater and shot up a bunch of unarmed people. And they're using AK-47s, guns that have been banned outright for ownership in France forever. Like yeah. there was no ever a, a path for ownership of that gun. We had one of the worst uh, school shootings in Beslan, Russia. 330-odd children and, and people wow. died uh, oh in, in that, you know, one of the worst shootings ever, again, because gun-free zones kill, you know. Yeah. In an area, we saw Brussels, Belgium on New Year's Eve a couple of years ago where a guy drove a truck through a crowd and killed, you know, dozens and dozens of people instantaneously and with great efficiency. Uh, this isn't a gun issue. This is a heart issue, people. Exactly. There's evil in this world. And so even if you could snap your finger and make all the guns disappear from the bad guys and the good guys and everybody, and we all, you know, pounded our guns into plowshares, uh, which I believe will happen someday. <laughs> but uh, until then, like, you still have the heart of man to deal with it. And it's evil, and it's, in some cases, uh, crazy, you know, mm -hmm. so... Yeah, that's I, and that's the point of justice is to uh, that's the point of government is to administer the justice uh, towards the people who take advantage of others and who do those who um, have a crooked human heart and, and use that in the in a wrong way. That's the point of government, not to take it away from the good people who need that gun to protect themselves. Right. Because, you know, crazy thought, when you ban a gun, the law-abiding citizens who aren't going around hurting people are going to give up their guns, and the people who are already hurting, hurting other citizens beforehand are still going to get their hands on weapons. They're still going it, to, it'll just go to the black market. Right. Yeah. I think it's yeah. an idea of, like, they almost have a vision of a utopia of no guns at all. Like, somehow, there's just going to magically be, like, if we have enough gun laws, certainly there'll be no guns, which is, like, it's impossible. Like, especially right. with the way the border is in Mexico... Guns are coming up from there all the time, and you they're not talking about that. They don't want to talk about that issue. So it's its clearly a deflection, yeah. I feel like. And even the places that have the most gun crime, guns are already illegal. Like Chicago, you, you're not allowed to own a gun and look at Chicago. Yeah, the highest uh, rates of crime, there's a couple anomalies to that statistic, but John Lott wrote a book called More Guns, Less Crime, and I think he's on his fourth or fifth edition because uh, it keeps updating and it keeps pro proving the point over and over. Mm -hmm. With new evidence. So, yeah, with new yeah. evidence. And um, so the highest um, gun crime areas, like you said, are areas that it's harder, hardest to acquire a firearm. And uh, if you take the 10 highest gun crime cities out of the equation then we are by far one of the safest places on earth. And that's 10 cities that are responsible for the vast majority of crime in, in this country. And so if you take those 10 out of the equation, we're like 182nd out of 212 countries on earth. Yeah. It's like we're at the bottom of the basement. But the, the bottom line is the most highly restrictive areas are usually the, some of the highest rates of gun crime. Then you have some of the most permissive uh, states and areas have the lowest rates of gun crime. You know, it's, uh, and I hate that word gun crime because really we don't use it in anything else. Like we don't call baseball bat crime. We don't call it <laughs> knife crime. We don't call fist it shod fist or yeah. shod foot and yeah. fist crime. We call it crime. Right. And, now, all of a sudden, when you put gun in there, it makes it sound so more, much more scary or whatever. Yeah. And honestly, it is a more efficient tool than those other things I mentioned. However, um, it's not painting the true picture of what's going on in the society because mm -hmm. last couple of weeks, I've heard repeated more often than ever how Massachusetts has one of the lowest gun-related deaths in the country. And they love to champion the fact that we have the most strict gun control laws. However, the thing they fail to mention is we, a lot of the 
gun-related crime happens in our urban area near Boston and around there. What do we have in Boston that most rural areas don't have? The greatest healthcare system in the world. We have hospitals everywhere, mm. trauma centers. We have emergency rooms almost on every street corner around the you know yeah. greater Boston area. So we have the best health, and a lot of people are actually getting treated and are surviving uh, gun crime. But if you look at the rate of violent crime, Massachusetts leads New England. Wow. We have the highest rate of violent crime in New England. Wow. Um, so you have Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont to our north, which are all constitutional carry states with a far lower violent crime uh, statistic than Massachusetts. So we love to sit there and pound our chest that, oh, because of our strict gun laws, we're the lowest gun-related deaths in the country. Uh, okay, but we're the most violent state in New England. Yeah. So it doesn't, you Tell can't have story. it both ways. It's the hard issue. Yeah, yeah, it's the hard issue. So we're seeing a lot of crime in Massachusetts. Maybe they're not all dying. And uh, if you look at the spike in gun-related deaths from 98, uh, when the Gun Control Act that Massachusetts signed on to, we had a big gun bill in 98 that made uh, the, our approved weapons roster and uh, assault weapons ban and storage issues and all this stuff and testing of firearms and made it uh, more restrictive to own guns in the state. Uh, from 98 till now, we're up 120%. So, you know, the gun crime, if you will, to use a bad phrase, has has gone up year over year mm -hmm. since 98 when the gun control was put into yeah. place, the, the most strict gun control in the nation almost was put into place. We've had a steady climb in, in gun crime. So let's get into specifics about the bill and exactly what the uh, the bill is restricting. Uh, I mean, like you said, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of pages, over 100 pages of, uh, yeah. it, it's essentially like an omnibus like gun grab bill, yeah. essentially. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you, you had a video on your Cape Gunworks YouTube channel, recommend yeah. it, check it out, uh, you, where you broke down the 4420 gun, uh, gun bill. And you said something that just blew me away. You were standing right out there and you, you, you said, to, you know, to my right, if this bill passes, I will be able to sell almost none of the guns on this wall. Am I, am I right? I'm quoting you right. Yep. And you said, uh, Michael Day's office, the, the Democrat who proposed the bill into the Massachusetts uh, legislature, uh, he, he asked Cape Gunworks to send him a list of the guns that you would no longer be able to sell if the bill passes. Mm -hmm. And, but you, you said in the video, it would be easier for you to send a list of the guns that you could sell right. on, because you said you could count them on two hands. Could you actually like go through those guns? Like what sure. guns would you be able to sell if and when this bill actually goes through? Yeah, so I'm not even sure about these three. Okay. I, I think it's a solid three, maybe four guns that I would be able to sell. Um, and <laughs> That's insane. As far as a, we're talking specifically semi-automatic yep. rifles. So um, the, the four, three or four is, one is the Ruger PC carbine, which is a, uh, a state-compliant version, so it doesn't have any other evil feature, quote-unquote, uh, that they love to tout. So it wouldn't have a threaded muzzle, it wouldn't have a pistol grip, it wouldn't have a folding or collapsible stock or a detachable stock. So the reason I say maybe I'll be able to sell these is because of these two added features. Like the federal assault weapons ban had basically five or six features that they called evil features. And that was coined by Diane Feinstein years ago. The whole gun ban was about features. It wasn't about a specific model of gun. That's how Maura Healy got it really wrong in 2016. Okay. So fast forward to now, they're adding features to this list. The original list was, uh, was pistol grip, detachable magazine, bayonet lug, flash hider, um, folding or collapsible stock, grenade launcher, or uh, I might be missing something. That's pretty cool. Grenade, not, grenade launcher. Yeah, that's, that's pretty right. cool. So those six things, if you will. Now they've added thumb hole stock, uh, vertical foregrip or angled foregrip, or a shroud that will protect your hand from being burnt if you're holding where the barrel is. A detachable stock, which means, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm in the gun business. I know a lot about guns. What is a detachable stock? As far as I can tell, 
every gun has a detachable stock. Oh, that means yeah. the gun separates from the action of the gun. Yeah. Of the, I mean, the stock, right? And I think I know what they're implying, and that is that the stock could be taken off to make it shorter overall length. Mm -hmm. But that's not what the law says. It says detachable stock. I mean, that's like grandpa's bolt action deer gun. If you can take that screw out of the bottom and separate it from the action of the gun, it has a detachable stock. <laughs> yeah, the, the people who write these laws don't understand what they're t trying to do. You know? <laughs> well, it uh, makes me wonder where they're getting it. But you, you said also in the video, you said, uh, if the bill passes, I won't be able to, basically won't be able to sell any semi-automatic weapon or rifle. I, I'm not really good with guns. Semi-automatic yep. uh, semi rifle that has a detachable mm -hmm. magazine, which you did mention. I'm like I said, support the Second Amendment. I don't really like understand all the specifics of the terms that you're using. Does that literally just mean like the magazine coming out of the gun? Yeah, like that's all that is. Yeah, it's so, not every gun. Yeah, pretty basically? much. So that's why it's impossible for me to create a list because, again, the Ruger PC carbine, Ruger Mini 30, Ruger Mini 14, and the Springfield M1A and the New York California configuration are the four guns that I've come up with that I might be able to continue to sell under the current proposed bill. Gosh. But again, those guns have this piece of plastic on top. So when you grip the gun out out here to shoot it, you don't burn your hand. Yeah. So now does that make it an evil feature? So because it says shroud in the in the yeah. law. So it's like I've never seen a rifle with an exposed barrel with no type of handguard, if you will, at all. Um, never seen one. They all have a stock that goes out under the barrel, so you can hold it, and you don't burn your hand when you shoot it. So, yeah. So if this law passes, is it just for the sale of guns? Like guns that already have been, people can keep the guns they already have, right? Mm -hmm. It's not. That's a great question. Originally written, no. In HD 4420, there was no legacy or grandfathering provision. So and they just so you so would have had to turn them in. They, that's what they were proposing, wow. and they wrote no guidance on that. Wow! The, this bill is really bad. It's 122 pages <laughs> of poor planned. It's you asked, you wonder where they're getting this from. I think they're getting it from the wish list from gun rights groups. I mean, uh, not gun rights from gun ban groups yeah, like gun Giffords or okay. Bloomberg or uh, Every Town or Moms Demand Action. There's about a bunch of them. And that's where they're getting this from. They're, they're donors to their campaigns, and they're getting their wish list package, and so they're writing it into law, and they're encoding it into law. And so it creates more questions than answers. It's poorly written legislation that ends up with unenforceable, un, you know, ambiguous laws that are unconstitutional, I might add. Yeah. So this is a categorical ban of an entire class of weapons, which is semi-automatic rifles, if it has a detachable mag and any other feature. So therefore, it's an entire category of gun. Ironically, I called Michael Day's office, spoke with Patrick, his aide, and that's the one who asked me to write this. Mm -hmm. When I went back to his office a couple weeks ago, the day they voted on this bill, I, I said, did you get my email? And he said, yep. And I was really telling him how displeased I am that this is the final version of this bill that's going to be voted on today. This is horrific, you know, as far as a rights bill, uh, especially by someone who's a second amendment, I mean, a civil rights advocate. That's what Michael Day touts himself as. He's a civil rights advocate. And so uh, I think that just means social justice. Warrior. Yeah, of course. I think that's all that means. everything, but the civil right, yeah. <laughs> uh, the right to keep and bear arms and protect yourself. And I said, Patrick, this, you know, I, I showed you what I would be able to sell. And he goes, that's not what I asked. You could have really helped us in this regard, Toby. He's trying to put this whole bill yeah. back on me and say, you could have helped me with this. And instead, you chose to play games and do it this way. And I'm like, excuse me? No, I was legitimately telling you what I would be able to sell and everything else I won't. Yeah. So just look at your own bill. You enumerate dozens and dozens and dozens of guns that I won't be able to sell that are my bread and butter right now mm -hmm. that I sell to, you know, because that's the only option because you've already had, had this enforcement notice that came down in 2016 that cut off my primary source of income. So now you're trying to restrict it again, and now you're trying to project onto me how I could have done something about this. 
meanwhile, I've been in open conversation with anyone who will listen, you know, ever since I read the, fir- the first day of this bill. Number two, he said that, uh, and to answer your question, Hunter, I'm sorry, I'm so circuitous. No, this is good. But um, the, the, the original bill had no provision to keep your gun. The newer version, Michael Day expressed at the hearing, the hybrid hearing that we all attended, that it has a not a true grandfathering provision, but it has a legacy provision, meaning you'll be able to keep it if the bill passes, which it did in the House, but you won't be able to sell it to someone. You won't be able to trade it in at the gun store. The gun store can't continue to sell that gun. Uh, it would have to be surrendered, sold out of state, or sold to a gun dealer, or sold to someone who's exempt, like a police officer. Yeah. And then on the House floor, the very next week, he testified in his speech that this is a true grandfathering provision, and you would be able to sell it to your friend, to your neighbor, to your uncle, to your father, give it to your kid, whatever. Uh, you know, you'd be able to buy and sell any gun that's in the state prior to the, this date. And he even made it sound like we'd be able to sell the guns that we haven't been able to sell since 2016. All the, all the guns that since the Morahealy edict that have been in circulation, but we haven't been able to sell them. If you own one, you can continue to sell it to your friend or whatever, but I can't sell them as a gun dealer because I had that gun put to my head by the attorney general's office of a $10,000 fine and 10 years in jail and non-renewal. But he's making it sound like, oh, yeah, you'll be able to sell anything that was in the state prior to this date. And, you know, that was news to me. His aide also told me that same thing. I have not found that language in this 122 pages. So he was either lying or mistaken. We did, didn't read the bill. Or didn't read his own <laughs> it's also, bill. That could, it's an it's 122 pages. It's like, how can you expect the average gun owner, the average person to even know, like read the, the law jargon and know what the law even right. means? It's like you're making the law impossible to even follow in the, ver- follow in the first place. And our place. laws are already that way in the state of Massachusetts. Now it's going to... It, it wasn't just a doubling down on bad law. It was like to the power of 10. Like yep. this makes it 10 times worse. Mm. It makes it um, impossible to comply with the law. And all law that makes you a criminal overnight by doing nothing is bad law. Like that should never, ever, ever be a thing in our history, in, in our society. And that's what a lot of this law does. Uh, it, it's very ambiguous. It's vague. Uh, there's a lot of other things, but I think the most egregious is the categorical ban of an entire class of weapons, which, mm-hmm. by the way, the Heller decision in 2015, that, that's what that whole thing was about. They had banned handgun ownership in Washington, D.C. So uh, Rich Heller sued for his right to keep and bear arms, and they agreed with him and said, yeah, you That's can't great. ban an entire category of guns. And there, there you have it, you know. So, yeah. But here we are, yeah. another categorical so, ban of firearms. Yeah, the optimist in me wants to, to say that there's no way that this bill, if it gets passed, that the courts would allow it. Or, or even how is a, a local police department even going to enforce the bill? Like, have they, I don't know, I know in some other states that there's been bills that the Senate has proposed and the police officers have said, or the sheriffs have said, we're not going to enforce this yeah. bill if, if you do it. I don't know. What is the state of it like in Massachusetts? There's a couple of town uh, police chiefs that have come out and said, we will not enforce this, which is huge. Where That's police awesome. department, Plymouth Police Department, Plymouth County Sheriff's Department. Um, but more importantly is there's 351 towns in Massachusetts. Every single police chief in the, town of, in the state of Massachusetts opposes this bill. Wow. Every single 351 one. <laughs> to zero. Wow. And 100 police chiefs from campuses, from uh, school, university campuses. So that's a total of 451 to zero. That is mind-blowing. That's yeah. amazing. All oppose it, and yet they don't care. They didn't listen to it. And these are the people who actually have to enforce it. Yeah. And uh, it gets better because the implications of passing unconstitutional law trickles down to the people who have to enforce the law. Mm -hmm. 
if you enforce unconstitutional law, your qualified immunity can be taken away. Yeah, because you're if not you de- your oath. Yeah. Right. If you deprive someone of their constitutionally protected rights under the color of law, you can have your immunity stripped. Now, the legislature is immune to that because in the Constitution, they, there was provision where uh, they can't be sued for making law because they're always going to have somebody upset at them. You know, uh, somewhere out there, there's a murderer mad that it's illegal to commit murder, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, but it's pretty obvious why we yeah. as a society need to make sure murder is not a, not a thing. And uh, so they can't be sued for creating law. However, I mentioned that federal code, you know, it's called uh, 18 U.S.C., uh, section 242 of of official U.S. law and code that says no official or uh, I'll just boil it down to official. It lists a long list mm-hmm. of what those what the official is acting in their official capacity under the color of law may deprive someone of their constitutionally protected rights, state or federal constitutionally protected mm-hmm. rights. And so if they do, the, it can be as simple as a fine, depending on what it is, all the way up to the death penalty wow. if somebody's life was lost in the process. Yeah. That, and I, when I testified before uh, the House, I said that. I said, you guys are actually walking a fine line here. Um, number one, you're violating your oath of office. Number two, you don't have the constitutional authority to do what you're doing because of the constitutional limitations. And number four, you know, you're, you're running up against U.S. Code Title 18, Section 242, which, frankly, I would not want to be in that chair and high-fiving each other saying we did it when you get the lawsuit that might come your way, or worse. And uh, I don't know of a situation where public officials have ever been tried under that, um, I'm sure you'd have to get a complicit justice department to bring charges, which is highly unlikely. But, you know, if people start dying because politicians make it harder and harder to exercise the right to keep and bear arms, and it's well documented, you know, somewhere along the line, you'll get a prosecutor who will take the case. And uh, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes if, if that heads down that road. No kidding. So it seems like the, the ruling class is their will for the future of Massachusetts is completely at odds with the will of the people. Because you've got elected representatives on Beacon Hill in Boston, and then you've got um, and then you've got sheriffs, who that is an elected position, I believe. It is, yeah. Uh, all across the state, not one is supporting this bill. Where is the disconnect between the people and the rulers that they elected to supposedly represent them? That's a great Why question. is there a disconnect? Yeah. Like, what, uh, what happened? Where? Well, <laughs> I think it's the root cause of the whole question is we know better than you. Like, we can, you know, I know you think you want that, but let us protect you from yourself. Yeah. That's the mindset of the ruling class, if you will, or those elected officials. They, um, you know, that's what, and it's kind of inherent with the job, right? You're making laws that are supposed to better society. Um, so you have that kind of nanny, nanny state mentality to begin with, and now we're talking about something uh, like a firearm and that's real easy to get emotionally worked up and, and, uh, and stand in the graves of those who've been killed. Uh, but the bottom line is they, they're going to do it because they want to do it. And yeah. this is all a result of the Speaker of the House, Ron Mariano, he kind of wants to make this his legacy, you know? Uh, that's the way he is. And they're never happy with the amount of legislation that's proposed. They're, it's just the stepping stone approach. They're trying to get to total gun confiscation and gun ban. And I've been saying that since I became a gun owner in 93, and everyone's like, ah, no one's coming for your gun. Like, that's ridiculous. We just want to have common sense gun laws in this country, in this state. Nobody is coming after your guns. Well, we went from that 
to hell yeah, we're coming with your AK 47s and your AR 15s. Like they're saying the quiet part out loud now. Yeah. And now it's just, yep, we're coming for AKs, we're coming for ARs, we're coming for high capacity magazines. And, uh, you know, that is completely unconstitutional. And um, they don't even try to hide it. And unfortunately, the people where I think the biggest disconnect, and this is kind of circling back to your question, is, you know, we're, we live in a very liberal, very democratically controlled, democratic controlled state. And I would say even those who are very liberal and democrat that believe in the second amendment they're probably five or six maybe eight or nine on their list of highest priorities whereas true gun rights advocates or very conservative people even if they don't choose to protect themselves with arms they it's in the top two or three you know in some cases it's the top one you know like because some people have a level of understanding that once the second amendment falls off the out of the way, everything else, there's no, there's no relief valve in place to prevent total tyranny from taking over, mm -hmm. which then if they can take away the Second Amendment, they can easily take away all the other rights because right. no one has a way to fight The Second back. protects all the other ones. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So it makes you thank God for the Constitution that right. we have these things in place that the sheriffs can step up and say we're not going to enforce it. So mm -hmm. I think that we should note that. But... Um, what is a way you think like an average person who disagrees with this bill, what can they do to yeah. stop it? At this point, the fight is in the Senate. So the, the House has already passed it. Number one, take everybody to task who voted for this. There was, 100 and, there was 120 to uh, 45, I think, um, is what the, or 120 to 40 was how that the, you know, 124, mm -hmm. those 120 should not get their job back. No, they should all be they primaried. Should, they should at be least. primaried and they should be uh, ousted mm -hmm. from their position. Obviously, that's not going to happen in all 120 cases, but I would love to see that, yeah. especially the primary, primary and uh, a good opponent in the general against Michael Day and Ron Mariano and the, you know, the big ones, the, uh, all the, all the people that were in on this early. and uh, But right now, the focus has shifted to the Senate. It's going to get sent to the Senate. Senate has said that they're going to take this up in January. They're going to take from now till January to write their version of the law. And everything's going to be done behind closed doors and conference and uh, to reconcile the bill with the House. Unfortunately, that's the way it's going to go. So we really need to harp on this with our state senators and make sure yeah. that they know don't touch this with a 10-foot pole. Do you think this will survive in the courts? I, I, I wanted to bring up the, because you brought up the, what was it, the Eller decision? The Heller. Heller, yeah. excuse, yeah. excuse me. Uh, there was another one called the Bruin decision right. out of yeah. New York. Yeah. And I was reading, as I was researching the bill, the origin of the bill, it came up that, um, it was this was a more conservative perspective of this article, but it said that Michael Day, it, it, they... He used this opportunity almost as, um, how do I say it, like out of retaliation against what the Supreme yeah. Court did in the Bruin decision. Mm -hmm. He like just put all the chips in the table in HD 4420, yeah. um, which by the way is called the modernization of firearm laws. Right. Um, so can you, can you explain the origin of that? The Bruin, yeah. Can you explain what the Bruin decision is and then how that affected this uh, bill here in Massachusetts? Yeah, so that's exactly what this is. It's a temper tantrum from the Bruin uh, ruling that came down in June of 2022. Um, and that was the NYSERPA, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus uh, Bruin, who's the attorney general in the uh, state of New York. So basically they had a licensing scheme that is very similar to ours. It's a May issue. So you had to have a proper cause in order to exercise your right to keep and bear arms in New York, just like you did in Massachusetts, Maryland, California, there's seven or eight different locations, Washington, D.C. again. Um, so it was like seven or eight or nine localities in the country that all had this similar language, and it's May issue. Basically, if you could prove that um, you were being followed home by trained assassins and they were going to wipe you and your family out, or uh, you had some other reason for wanting to own a gun, 
then they might issue you a license. That was really the way it worked. Um, and that you couldn't exercise your right to keep and bear arms without that license. So it's not a right at that point. It's not a right. Yeah. It's a privilege. Mm. And um, so they challenged it and won. And basically the whole Bruin case is an affirmation of the Heller case. Heller was good law. The problem with the Heller decision was it just stated this. You know, it, 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 it was nuanced beyond just you can't categorically ban a, a gun for ownership. It, it really went into the weeds on it, but then it just stopped at that. So in a post-Heller world, hundreds of lawsuits popped up, but there were very few Second Amendment victories uh, because they d just didn't instruct the lesser courts or the inferior courts on how to rule on Second Amendment cases at this point. So when the Bruin decision came down, they said, you're, what you're doing is unconstitutional. The Second Amendment is a right to keep and bear arms, not just in the house, but outside the house. Mm. You, can, you can carry a gun. And you don't need, if you're going to have a license, it, it has to be a must-issue if you're not a federally prohibited person. And they didn't even get into the weeds on whether or not the licensing part of it is constitutional. All they said was, um, if they're not a prohibited person, they have to be able to exercise the right to keep and bear arms. But then they took it a step further. Clarence Thomas wrote in his majority opinion that the interest balancing approach or the two-step approach or the tiers of scrutiny approach of writing law according to the Second Amendment, which is a two-step process. So you write the law, you have the text and the history and the tradition of the law, but then the legislature wants to, through interest balancing or tiers of scrutiny or through, uh, because it's the will of the people, they want to change something or add to it or attach conditions upon it like licensing or like bans on specific guns or capacity of uh, magazines and stuff like that. And Clarence Thomas said that is one step too many. You can no longer have a two-step approach. You must use strict scrutiny as it pertains to the Second Amendment, <clears throat> which is really important. No other law, I mean, no other constitutional amendment is given the type of scrutiny that the Second Amendment was, which was just the will of the people, or yep. it's in the interest of our communities that we want to restrict this because guns bad and they kill people. Yeah. Uh, so no one would subject any other right to those conditions. Yeah. We would never say you got to have a license to go to church. Yeah. We would never say, oh, uh, you know, we're going to pass a law that says you got to put a plaque on your house that says you have license number 14260, yeah. which is good for five years, to protect you against illegal searches and yeah. seizures. So when the police come to your door, they see your plaque and go, okay, they're good, let's go to the next house. Yeah. That wouldn't, we would never tolerate that. Yeah. But we've been tolerating that with the Second Amendment for decades. And Bruin put an end to that and said, now you have A, the text of the Constitution or the text of the Bill of Rights is your primary focus. If it restricts it in the text, you can restrict it. If it doesn't, you can't. Then there's a second approach, and it's the, the government now has to have the burden of proof to prove that there was a historical tradition or analog at the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791. So if you want to go outside the text which, by the way, says shall not be infringed. Yeah, pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you want to go outside of the words of that, those 26 or 27 words of the Second Amendment, then you have to show historical analog and tradition at the time of the founding or the time of the ratification in 1791. That's it. Yeah. If you can't prove it existed then, it is unconstitutional. So... All gun control bills, including this 122 pages of drivel, yeah. is their days are numbered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One and, thing, yeah, go ahead. Continue. Yeah, no, I was just going to say their days are numbered and uh, it will all go by the wayside someday. Uh, the problem is you got to 
sue and have standing yeah. and all that. So yeah, another thing that I saw in the bill, which was like you know, because like I said, I don't know as much about the specifics of the of the types of the models of guns or the aspects of a gun. But one thing that I did understand, I was like, this is crazy, was that without the consent of the property owner, it would be illegal to carry your weapon, even concealed, as far as I can tell, on private property. Is that true? It's, it's true for a domicile in this bill, okay. which uh, they're trying to expand the sensitive places. So, you know, in the Bruin decision, it wasn't in the majority opinion. It was in the concurrence that Kavanaugh wrote. He talked about sensitive places. And he said, like, oh, yeah, there's sensitive places has to be limited to, like, a, a school or an airport. And you can't rule, like, entire areas as a sensitive place. Well, once again, our legislature and all of its wisdom is trying to expand sensitive places to now include a person's home so that you'd need to get permission from them if you wanted to carry a gun um, on their property. Uh, they also are expanding it to polling places, which I find incredibly ironic that as you go to exercise your right to vote, you can't exercise your right to keep and bear arms. It's, ma it's maddening. I, uh, we've got to let you go in, in a couple of minutes, yeah. but I wanted to do a little thought experiment first because uh, I, um, I want to know how far like, we go because I always wonder about the line of, because it says the right to keep and bear arms. Mm -hmm. So do you think... What do you think about recreational bazookas? <laughs> do you think constitutionally we have the right to recreational bazookas? Because it says keep and bear arms. And that would... No, it's a fair question. And that's... <laughs> there's a lot... Uh, there's a case in Chicago right now that is at the... I think it's the Third Circuit Court of Appeals um, that will go to the Supreme Court. That'll be the next case, in my opinion, that will end up at the Supreme Court. Um, and that's what they spent like the majority of the time, like asking the pro 2A lawyers was like, all right, so what about tactical nukes? You know, what <laughs> yeah. about surface Fair to question. air missiles? <laughs> what about tanks? <laughs> what about, uh, you know, and the bottom line is, from what I can tell from the Constitution, it's the right to keep and bear, bear arms. So bearable arms are something you can carry, you can hold, you can use efficiently. You know, I'm sure there's legal scholars that could bear, you know, break down the, the word bear to what that encompasses. I don't think it includes tactical nukes. I don't think it includes surface-to-air missiles. But bazookas, maybe. Bazookas, maybe. <laughs> no, uh, the, the thing is, um, there's gun control is a term that I don't like, that everybody is on that spectrum, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like, my buddy says, um, none of us want machine gun vending machines in the elementary schools, right? Mm -hmm. Fair to say? Fair. Yeah, yeah fair. That's a, I think that's good. Um, so yeah, we don't want that. So that means we're in favor of some, some. sort of gun control, right? Then on the other end, it's total ban on anything yeah. that's sharp and pointy, right? Yeah. Um, but somewhere there is the intent of our founders. Mm -hmm. So what is the intent of our founders? It was to dis dissuade tyrants. It was to be a tyrant relief valve is what I like to call it. <laughs> that's good. It's a deterrence from people who would become ty tyrannical. And I don't think politicians wake up in the morning like, today's the day, I'm gonna conquer the world and I'm gonna <laughs> rule, you know, I don't think that's something that happens. I think it happens through generations and through decades of politics and this consummation of power. And then all of a sudden like, whoa, wait, I can't lose out on this little area over here. So for the reasons of deterring federal government from becoming tyrannical, I think that we should be able to own military weapons. You know, a, a lot of times you hear people say like, you really want people running around with machine guns? It's like, well, does the government have them? Does the military, do the police have them? Mm. You know, if they do, then we need equal access yeah, it's to match what our government could ultimately 
impose upon us. Those same people are usually the ones who have a distrust for police and military, right. too. So it's kind of a, a good way to point out. So. Yeah. And uh, Mark Smith, he's a Second Amendment scholar. He's a, an amazing uh, guy. He has a YouTube ch channel called The Four Boxes Diner. And he just did a pretty comprehensive video about uh, First Responders Day. And he actually said that's a disingenuous term. Nothing against police and fire and medical. They're, they're awesome. They're heroes. But really, the average person is the first responder, right? Yeah. The, the people who die in mass shootings or are in, find themselves in mass shootings are the first responders. They're on the scene first. And they have to deal with it. So for that reason, if you're allowing your police and your military to have AR-15s or M16s or um, you know high capacity magazines, then you must let the people have them because yeah. they're the ones that find themselves in the face of evil before anybody. Yeah. And if if we're not there to if we're not going to be able to protect ourselves because we've been disarmed or our arms have been restricted con unconstitutionally, then you know I think government is is uh, complicit in that whatever the however the cards fall yeah. as a result. So at the end of the day, the people have the right to keep and bear arms and to defend themselves against a tyrannical government. It's not so we can go hunting. Right. <laughs> it's to protect ourselves uh, against a tyrannical government. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, thank, thank you. you yeah. Thank you so much for this, Toby, uh, coming on the podcast yeah. and ha kind of having your expert opinion. I would love to actually have you back on like after it's voted on in the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, you know, we'll, we're going to continue to talk about this, but I'd, I'd, really, uh, I'd really like to get your opinion on the fallout of, of it after you know, sure. As it goes to Maury Haley's desk to be to be signed, uh, if it if it does pass the Senate. Um, but before before you go, just kind of uh, shameless plug. You know, where can people find <laughs> yeah. you? Uh, your gun store. Your uh, you know, you're running for local office. Mm -hmm. No, I appreciate that. Um, you can find me all over the internet if you look up Cape Gunworks on all of our social media channels. Uh, you know, we're at all the big tech ones plus some of the alternative ones like. Telegram and Truth and uh, Rumble and whatnot. So um, you can find us on X and YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we have two different sets of social media. One is Cape Gunworks and one is Rapid Fire Radio. Okay. Rapid Fire is a weekly radio podcast we do, all things Second Amendment. So that comes out every Wednesday at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern from 4 to 6 and um, you can subscribe if you go to go to our website, rapidfireradio.us, sign up to be alerted whenever we go live. And um, then we also uh, have um, social media around that, Rapid Fire Radio. Uh, but yes, you mentioned I'm running for local politics, town council. So I have electtobyleary.com and uh, I have a Toby Leary for town council Facebook page. So and what town is that in? That's in West Barnstable. So okay. Precinct 11 is West Barnstable in the town of Barnstable. A lot of people could get really confused <laughs> about that. But um, so, yeah, that's that election is less than a week away. So wow. November 7th um, will be awesome election day. So, well, yeah, yeah dot com. You that's got right. Rapid Fire Radio, Cape Gunworks. Make sure to check them out. Uh, as always, I am your host, Sam Mealy. I'm Hunter Young. And we are the Sons, Sons of, of Liberty. Liberty.